Testing, we're good. Got it right. Third time lucky, and we are live straight away. How's everyone doing? You doing okay? All right, yeah, wow. That was, did you? <laughs> I had one woohoo, uh, and then I had, uh. So um, I'm a little nervous because this third session, I meant to take things a little more academically and talk a little bit about an apologetic for the faith and uh, actually speaking into a field that uh, is a bit, of a, a bit of a joy and kind of a, a pet field for me, but I'm a little concerned. We're pretty late in the day, and I think we're feeling a little fried, some of us, maybe most of us. And so I'm just going to ask you to just bear with me. I'll try and get through as much of this as I can. I'll try and make it as engaging as I possibly can. But uh, by the nature of this content, it's not quite an exhortation as what I've been fortunate enough to do over the first two sessions. This is a little more academic. In fact, a lot of this content derives from a historiography uh, research paper that I wrote about a year ago now, uh, doing some other doctoral studies at a different seminary. And thinking about historiography, really, I would say is where our apologetic of the Christian faith, our profession that Christ is Lord over all time and space, over all reality, the Lordship of Christ is the constant it's the ultimate. It's, it's the transcendental reality which gives meaning to all other meaning. And, and, and it really is the story behind every other true story. It gives value and importance to everything that is innately valuable and important. And really in the discussion of history, it's one of those things where it's kind of like the concept or the philosophy of time. Not a lot of people ever actually stop and think about what is it? What actually is history? The field, the field of study of the past, like, like the events of the life of Charles Spurgeon or, or someone like Richard Baxter or someone like that, we call that study history, right? You're actually studying the events of the past. But the study of the study of the past is called historiography. It's a different word entirely. And it really, it's really its own body of philosophy around what does it mean to look at the way you look at the past. It's kind of like... It's kind of like you got those guys that love to play video games. And a lot of people here probably like to maybe that you spend some of your downtime playing some kind of a, a, an app on your phone. Or maybe you, you take it more seriously. You've got some games on your PC. I'm not that guy at all. I don't know anything about video games or actually PCs or phones. But I, that's not really my field. But then you've got those other guys that are like, they don't just like to play games. They want to make their own games. They want to code. They want to design. They want to create narratives. And that's really the study of historiography. Think about what is what is history? When we think about the reality of history, it's one of those unique things that we really can't demonstrate or prove with any scientific demonstration. In fact, if you've ever thought about it, history is one of those interesting ideas that can't really be demonstrated empirically at all. Some philosophers go to the extreme and they actually argue, they actually argue that right now, this very moment that we're in right now is the first moment of all reality. And what happened in the moment preceding it was aliens came down and dropped us all off here and put memories in our minds and created the world with so much order and uniformity so that now, once we all got animated, we believe there actually was a past. But there wasn't at all. Now, that sounds outlandish. I mean, you're ready to, you're ready to really, you know, tear, tar and feather someone that proclaims that. But if you were put on the spot to prove that wrong, you would find that actually quite difficult to do. How would you demonstrate that that's wrong? How would you prove that that's inaccurate? How would you actually argue with some cogency and some compelling argumentation that history actually existed? Or history, in fact, now exists? Let me create the tension, if you'll give me some time to do this. So history, 
Despite everything you just heard me say, you ready for this first proposition? History doesn't exist. Okay. We're all still here. You're wondering, what is this guy on? The second one, second proposition I want to offer you is history is the only thing that actually exists. Okay. Very good. Now, that looks patently on the surface, like I've just articulated a clear contradiction. History doesn't exist in one sense. It has no actually abiding ontological existence. It's the past. And history is the only thing that actually exists. In fact, if I can push the envelope, and you better believe I'm going to, you don't live in the present. You know, is, there, is anyone still here? Is there, is there anyone? Wow. You, don't, you don't actually live in the present. You've never seen the present. You've never functioned in the present. You live in what's called a subjective past. You have no ability to remedy or rectify that. This is the reality of our actual life on the continuum of time. The milliseconds that it takes our brain to interpret the data received through sense perception means that the present is always beyond our awareness and you'll catch up to it in a few hundredths of a second. And for some slower ones, I'll give you a moment. <laughs> to put it curiously, what we're always doing through sense perception... To... <laughs> yeah, that's... Whoever that was, that was brilliant. We're always buffering, some longer than others. We have these senses, sight, taste, touch, sound, smell, and our brain receives it, but there's a delay. And that means that we're not actually cognizant of the ontological present, we're always living in the past. So it becomes a cute little quib when someone says, you're living in the past, man, and you're like, hey, we all are. Ontologically, we all are. It wouldn't probably be the zinger you think it would be. Now, this reality has been demonstrated in numerous studies. This is not a, this is not a phenomenon that's, that's kind of embraced and understood by a niche portion of philosophers and scientists. This is a reality that every study that's been performed has verified. There was a study recently done, a very simple one that I can explain and we can all follow, where participants will see a large green circle prop up on a computer screen and they're asked to hit the space bar at the moment they see it. Big green circle, pop, space bar. And they would do this repetitively. The space bar would be hit. And then what they did was they rewired the program, the program in such a way that they, the participants, let me, let me read this because I'm going to get this wrong, pops up on the screen with a 0.81 second delay at the press of the space bar. Now, the brain loses the space of time. Then the participants had the delay removed without them knowing. In other words, when they hit the space bar, instantaneously, the green circle would appear. And they swore that the circle was popping up before they hit the space bar, when in fact it wasn't. This is the way in which we, we receive data, we receive information, we receive the reality all around us. When we lose the buffering time, we believe that there's been some, some kind of future reality that's happened before us. The, subject, the subjective present isn't present, it's already history. The moment you're aware of anything happening right now in your life, it's already history. A philosopher, E. Robert Kelly, 1882, hypothesized the present is better understood as the specious present. It's specious, it's suspicious, it's not, 
It's not as dependable as what you might think. In fact, it's not the present at all. The buffering time our brains need to interpret the data of the present and the reality that there's no actual intervening time between the past and the future, our brains use about a tenth of a second, sometimes 1.5 seconds. Some, some studies have shown that it's a second and a half time before you're even aware that the present has passed into the past. Now, this may sound a little bit dubious and maybe challenging, but what that means is, to your subjective reality, history is the only thing that's ever really existed. You've only ever seen and understood and interpreted and, and been present and been a part of and been engaged in history. The present is beyond you. In fact, E. Robert Kelly, the same philosopher I mentioned a moment ago, said the past does not exist. The future does not exist. And the conterminous, the present, the faculty from which, the faculty from which it proceeds lies to us in the fiction of a specious present. Put simply, if we exist in a closed system, we are in a real existential crisis with a relationship to time and history. Everything I said so far kind of sounds like an interesting curiosity and may not automatically appear why that's actually significant for our defense of the reality of the Christian faith. For our understanding that, that philosophy and history and objective truth at all are dependent upon this very reality. History, and if by that word we mean the simple past, is everywhere and is the story of everything. We live in a society that hinges much of the functionality on the reality and the discoverability of the past. For example, the law, economics, science, faith, family, medicine, even education become utterly redundant if history is non-existent or non-discoverable. If, if it's a myth that you can't ever retrace history and understand the events that have gone before Every basic operation of our world reinforces this reality and exemplifies the necessity of understanding the role of history in our lives and everything around us. Even to the very basis of, of a court of law, trying to ascertain whether, a, whether a, an arrested and arraigned so-called criminal, in fact, is guilty or not, is going to depend upon people's ability to conjure up eyewitness testimony and speak about the past as though it is... It is having a real effect upon the current, upon the present. The discipline of historical study is premised on the very continuity of things present with things past. God's initial creative work, ex nihilo, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, has given rise to his providential work of sustaining the created order. In other words, everything that exists today has a backstory that informs its purpose, its value, and its place in the meta story of the past. Our lives function as though the past is an inevitable reality for which we are both students of and beholden unto. Now this is really a challenge when we start to try and understand what history is and how it begins to infiltrate and, and inform everything that we treat as reality today. There's this really interesting study that was done recently and it was a study done on the very, the very idea of study. There was, a group of, there was a group of scientists that began to question the veracity of peer-reviewed journals. Now, if you're in academia, you know that peer review remains the, the gold standard, if you will. And in the world of peer review, it's appreciated that, that people are writing academically robust and, and, and firm and substantial and cogent argumentation. So a group of scholars 
began to write some articles that were desperately spurious, and the one condition that they decided they would do is that they would submit these articles to these particular journals with ideological biases that would make sure they use the jargon and the language of that ideological bias. So to the postmodern article, they, uh, journal, they wrote this article, this may sound a bit crass, in fact it is crass, that defended the reality that when dogs, when dogs dry hump each other, that was proof that society had descended into chaos of a rape white or white rape culture. Three of you are still paying attention. That is indeed laughable, <laughs> desperately laughable. That particular article, written entirely sarcastically, was awarded with a prize and was elevated to the top 25 articles in humanities of 2018. These particular academics wrote about a dozen of these articles and submitted them to all of these organizations and journals. They began reaping rewards. The entire science and the statistical data and the research was all spurious and invented on the spot, and all they needed to do was to write articles that cohered with the bias of the journal, and they found that they always had quite a willing audience. This demonstrates the futility and the utter stupidity of much of what prevails in our post-modern world. Because we want to make sure that what we're looking at here this afternoon has some dependency upon Scripture, we do need to take a moment to look at exactly how Scripture speaks about the being who is God, His consistent rule, and the way in which God views or understands history. Here's the reality. As we think about Pontius Pilate, faced with Jesus Christ, challenged by Jesus and challenging Jesus, Pontius Pilate articulates the question. You remember what it is? What is truth? This discipline of the study of history has become desperately controversial because in our modern day, claiming that things are facts and reality and objectively true has undergone a great contamination and compromise. In fact, if you will... It's reminiscent of Paul the Apostle in Mars Hill, in the Areopagus, in Acts chapter 17, faced with the, the Stoics and the, and the Epicureans. And if you like with those, those two different types of philosophical persuasion, it was, it was relativists and alongside them materialists. It was, it was postmodern people and those of, a, those of an Epicurean idea that ultimately everything boiled down to satiating glandular pleasure of the flesh. And what was Paul's argument? Paul's argument hinged upon the reality that God has set a day in which he will judge that world by the man that he has appointed, who though died, has risen from the grave, ascended to glory, and is indeed returning. Now that, at that moment on Mars Hill, provoked such a scorn and a, and a dismissal of the Stoics and the Epicureans, but here is the basis and the ground of our Christian confidence. That history, indeed, sounds like something I'm contradicting from earlier, in the most objective sense possible, history is true. History is real. History does exist. How can I say that? Well, bear with me for a few more moments. I know for a lot of you, this is quite the, uh, the struggle, but I trust you're keeping up with these propositions. The study of historiography or the study of history, there are many different approaches to the discipline, 
demonstrates that he inevitably breeds disagreement. Carl Truman, a philosopher and theologian, if you've never read anything about Carl Truman, definitely look him up. He was at Westminster Seminary for a long time. He's, uh, he's just a wonderful thinker and a contemporary of our own age. He spoke of the common factuousness of scholars, and he wrote this. There's an old adage among historians that no event in history is so certain that sooner or later someone won't come along and deny it ever happened at all. That's the nature of doing history. Arriving at this idea that the past exists and is demonstrably existent is a conviction that Christians must sustain, maintain, and defend. What is true for all schools of historiography and each historian is that when it comes to them reporting and retelling history, all historians are perpetually engaged in redaction. One historian put it very crudely, I'll, I'll kind of sanctify his language a little bit. He said, as historians, what we do is we drink in an ocean of information and we urinate out a cup. You can substitute wherever you like. Historians are engaged in the good fight. Now, let's talk more broadly. History is anthropology. History is unavoidable because history is the human story. And it is ingrained in who we are as people. We've spoken about this several times already today. The Genesis 3 encounter of Eve with the serpent and then Eve with Adam was premised upon the revision of history. Did God truly say? And we know that Eve never interacted with God in that initial experience having received the law. Eve received it through her husband Adam. And the devil's intention was to cast doubt and question the historicity. Storytelling, although this is an oversimplification, storytelling is essential to human experience. It may actually be the one unifying feature of the human experience. We see this when anthropologists study indigenous people inhabiting every extremity of the globe, indigenous people groups, and wherever people are found, they have this one thing in common. They codify aspects of their history, morals, taboos, and superstitions within storytelling. Of course, the more primitive cultures tend to enjoy blended stories containing elements of history and fact with, with myth and morals and entertainment. But when historians engage in their discipline studying history, they continue a tradition that is endured as far back as the very human species. Again, Carl Truman remarked this. He said, the heart of history was telling stories that explained the past. As soon as one moment succeeds another in our experience, we are compelled to revisit that moment in our memory and relive the story. Discovering moments that are beyond our memory entail doing historical research. People record their memories. They recall oral history, literary history, history in song and art, and future generations will discover moments like this. And they'll try and understand them. They'll try and interpret them. They'll try and gain value. The history, therefore, is the cross-stitch of civilization itself. It binds everything together. It unites people groups and connects the present with the near and the distant past. It is no doubt, there is no question as to why relativists and those of a postmodern persuasion are bent on undermining any veracity of history at all, or revising history in such a way that it doesn't actually reflect the things that happened in the past, 
but it reflects an agenda that they have to purport the past in such a way as to pursue and promote their political gain. So therefore, we see the limitations of the study of history. What is inescapable is the vast majority of the past is lost to the present and the future. It's this compelling C.S. Lewis quote who, who opined this. He said, we've already forgotten, even if we remembered, we have not time. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, the new moments are upon us at every tick of the clock in every inhabited part of the world and unimaginable richness and variety of history falls off the world into oblivion. For a moment, just think about this, the, the, the seven plus, nearly eight billion people on planet Earth today, as this clock right now ticks one more second, all of those emotions and those experiences and those engagements are left with a fraction of their reality in vague memories. This is the struggle that we have. This is why it seems possible for people to so revise history as to promote political agenda for their own personal gain without any real accountability. But here we arrive at the main point of what I want to express this afternoon, and I realize we are quickly losing time. Historiography is theology. And this has been a long, winding way to arrive at the main point. But this is the reality when we as Christians engage in academia or just simply trying to think consistently with the world around us. When we engage in the study of the past, we engage in a study that's only available to creatures of derivative ontology. Let me explain that phraseology a little bit vague, a little bit heady. History is not available. History is not available, bear with me, this is going to sound like heresy when I first say it, but trust me, you'll understand in just a moment. History is not available to God. God does not know history. I'm trying to think of an even more provocative way to say that. That's probably provocative enough. I think, Tom, you invited this guy all the way from America for him to stand up here and tell us God does not know history. What an outrage. I hope you're offended. I hope you're mildly offended. At least you've had your curiosity piqued. History is not available to the one who possesses divine aseity as God simply cannot know history. Let me rephrase it. God can't know history as history. God can't know history as history. God's omniscience is not in question. I'm not saying God's forgotten things and, and God, you know, I guess in his extreme old age, the ancient of days, he's starting to get a little bit absent-minded. I'm not saying that at all. God's omniscience is exhaustive and maximal. God knows all things by causal prescriptive knowledge. However, God's existence is not exhausted in sequential time like ours. Scripture elevates God's omnipresence to the same footing as his omniscience and demonstrates that God is not just everywhere present spatially, but God is everywhere present chronologically. The result is that God, know, God does not know the past as history. His presence is exhaustively suffused and comprehensively 
suffused throughout all time and space, making every place and every time God's present reality. Therefore, the past to God is not a reality as past, but it is His eternal present. Now, this is really going to bend your ability mentally to try and comprehend who the being of God is. And I would encourage you, rather than strain your finite mind to understand God, stand in awe and worship Him as the all-supreme ruler that He is. There's another way that theologians and philosophers talk like this. We, as limited finite beings, we lose time. Time comes Time is present, at least as a, as a bit of an illusion to us. And then time's gone, and we engage in an activity of trying to recapture it, trying to remember it, trying to record it, trying to recapitulate it. That's our life. That's not God's life. There's no way, this is no way, let me rephrase that, three times lucky. I'm so bad at trying to read a script, as you can probably already tell, but I'm doing my best. This is no way to delegitimize the discipline of history for derivative being. Obedience for creatures is not defined by replicating God's essence, but by obeying his imperatives and Im imitating his virtue. God is not losing time. It's almost like, it's almost like what happens is, we have, these, we have these simplistic ways of describing God and then we find that when we take our simplistic ways of understanding God and we bring them to the text of Scripture, we are confronted with His revelation. I find this with, with children that have maybe, maybe suffered under a, a Sunday school teacher that wasn't very theologically in tune, not trying to attack any Sunday school teachers, but even my own kids. We talk about God's omnipotence and my kids say, that means God can do anything. Well, according to who? He doesn't say that. The Bible is replete with things that God claims he can't do. He can't lie. He can't be unfaithful or untrue to himself. He can't deny himself. He can't break covenant. So when we define God and understand that theology is the basis of all true knowledge, all true reality, all true historiography, all true understanding of the present and the future, we realize that reality is all about proper knowing of who God is. The imitators of God, we are told. But God is not losing time, as finite creatures are. And this forces us to rely on recorded history to reclaim the past. God has sanctioned the recording of history in the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. God has codified large swaths of the human story in your Bible. Don't ever be reading your Bible and come across a large portion of history and think, oh my, here we go again, the, the story of the Israelites in the wilderness or the, the conquest of Canaan or the, the, the epoch of the kings and the rise and fall of wicked and holy kings and the exile in Babylon. Don't encounter that and think, well, this is just simple narrative. I've got to pull a moral out of it like you're reading some Disney fairy tale. That's not the Bible. God is, God is codifying in the canon of holy writ, real, true, verifiable history. And that should be a surprise to us because in our modern day, what is under the onslaughts of what is falsely understood as academia is the ability to do history at all. And yet God has shown us that history is stewardship. Following after God's example, 
believing in the truthfulness of the propositions that God gives, including the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. We said this in our Q&A. If no one had ever seen it, if no one had ever borne witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it doesn't in any way make it less true. It is an objective fact that God has stated as true. We see that much of today's revising of history represents unfaithfulness and a lack of willingness to believe. Yet here we go. We look at the Bible. We see God inspire history. We understand that God has given us a model and a method of doing that. And ultimately, it bows to the Lordship of Christ. So the Christian historian must be intentional, unapologetic, and yet be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within them, to honor Christ as Lord. The materialist, the postmodernist, the unbeliever, they can do nothing with history as history. But the Christian has the only real and true and defensible historiography at all. And Scripture remains the sufficient ground for the historian to learn God's methodology that honors him and is authentic to the inspired history of previous generations. God's Word offers the justification for the very existence of the discipline of doing history and gives us the warrant of doing it faithfully and redemptively, ultimately being accountable to Him and His all-knowing mind and His all-seeing eye and His all-present presence. The omnitemporalness of God that he doesn't move through time sequentially like we do, demonstrates that history is perpetually a reality before the inexhaustible mind of an infinite and holy God. This matters because this is the basis of our Christian hope. This is the basis of our confidence that Christ is Lord. He said everything the Scripture records him as saying. He did everything the Scripture records him as doing. And most notably, when he went to the cross, he took upon himself the penalties that our sins deserved. When he was buried in the grave, bodily buried in the tomb, and when he rose on the third day, those are real, true facts of history. And without that, Paul is right. Your faith is in vain. You are hopeless. In fact, among all people that live in the world today, you are the most to be pitied. Christ is not raised, but Christ is raised from the dead and we submit ourselves to him in all of our disciplines of thought and study and research and academia, the Lordship of Christ perpetually reigns supreme. Thank you.